Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. One hundred two point three FM Riverside and one hundred five oh AM Palm Springs. Welcome to the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, and today it's a thriller show. So we've got like two thrillers from Manila. We've got yeah. uh, we got Joe Goldberg. It's been a while. It has been a while. It has yeah. been a while. It's, I'm, I'm happy to hear that your dulcet tones of your voice, Al. Oh. It, it, it puts me to sleep. <laughs> You're like an ambient. Yeah, I am. I'm the ambient of the radio world. Yeah. <laughs> That's something to be proud of, I'll tell you. See, they pick on me all the time. And uh, Gavin Stone from the UK is here, and look out, he's raring to go. Hey, yeah, I'm tonight's decoy. Okay. <laughs> and, and you're ready for the turkey. It's almost like, you know, we almost recorded this on Thanksgiving. I didn't realize I set it up that way till Joe told me, and I, I don't know, I'm falling apart here. I'm getting old. Because yeah. you're, you're not in the American Thanksgiving world, right? No, not anymore. I haven't done American Thanksgiving for, well, it's only been about four or five years, I think. Three, no, maybe four years. Yeah, four years. So you forgot. Yeah. yeah, I've kind of forgot. I was running both uh, wow. for a year or two, and then I just got too tired. They're too close to each other, and I get too turkeyed out, you know. Yes. Too much, too much work. Too much work. Well, now joining us, we've got, um, uh, what can I say? She's a thriller author. The book is called The Peacock and the Sparrow, and it's a novel. So, I.S. Barry, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, Ilana. How did you get into this world? Like, what, what, would, what would make you want to get into this writing world? <laughs> well, um, I was a spy before I was a spy novelist. So um, I think my years as a spy kind of stayed with me. And um, they, you know, they just didn't leave me. And I think writing this book was sort of my way of processing it. 
Um, for me, it was sort of a dark profession because you're manipulating people all the time and they're manipulating you. And you make these decisions that have consequences on people's lives in a world where, you know, there's no clear right and wrong. Um, and it really haunted me even to this day. So I think in a lot of ways that was sort of the impetus for writing my book. Um, I know Joe was in the CIA too, so I'm, I think he can probably relate to some of that. Yeah. Yeah, he's still manipulating people. That's yeah. true. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it's, it's, I manipulate that turkey, not to burn it. <laughs> yeah, burn my brisket. Yeah, well, no, I, no, but you're right. Because I remember coming out, and I was just sat there for a long time and just looked, stared at the wall and felt like, you know, days after day, you know, everything you did was like this Vaseline, sticky, slow feel. You know, yeah. Never quite feeling comfortable and relaxed. Yeah. And I, and I liked that, you, that the writing thing uh, was your – method to get out of it. it ended up being mine took a while but i was and i did some before but did you uh do any of the writing while you were there at all to sort of offset it to, to give it not really and i was undercover at the time yeah so most of it and i actually so i wrote my book is set in bahrain um which i lived in after i left the agency during the arab spring and it was for my husband's job so um to me like w when i got to bahrain that was it was during the Arab Spring, and it was such an interesting conflict. There was no clear right side. You had the Saudis backing the monarchy and Iran, back to some degree, backing um, the revolutionaries. And it, it was just a perfect prism for a spy novel, in my view. So even though I hadn't served there as a, as a CIA spy, um, that was sort of the, the perfect setting for me. So to answer your question, um, you know, I... I was long out of the agency by the time I started writing the book. But I did write, I spent a year in Baghdad um, during, during the war from 2004 to 2005, which was pretty uh, horrifying, pretty awful and, and traumatic. And, um, and I did kind of feel the need to write a lot of that stuff down um, after I left the agency. I kind of, I kind of subscribe to um, Tim O'Brien, you know, who, who wrote, um, he writes a lot of war literature. He wrote The Things They Carried. And um, he, he said something like, fiction is the lie that helps us understand the truth. So he has some great quotes like that. And for me, I felt like, because I had written some sort of nonfiction pieces about my time in Baghdad, um, but I felt like at the end of the day, fiction proved to be sort of the the best medium for me for kind of making sense of my experiences. And it's also better to get through publications review. A hundred percent. I agree with you on that. Yep. Um, yeah. I've had, I've had more trouble getting my nonfiction pieces through. And um, I think the, this book went through with like a breeze. I mean, it was, it had minimal redactions. Um, I mean, Joe, what's your experience with, with the publications review board? They do it. They, I give them credit for timing. They do it when they say they're going to do it a month or two months. I give. I love that. Uh -huh. Uh, uh -huh. And the, the further away I've gotten from um, agency life, the first book had some. The second book had a few. Third, fourth book basically done. I I know less. I'm further away. Yeah. Um, from knowing anything. Right. And there, and there's been a lot more writers. So the stuff that I thought, oh my god, how could they possibly put that in a book? Is kind of like, yeah, that's on TV. No big deal. Exactly. Well, not only not only a lot of writers, but a lot of really senior people, <laughs> like a lot of directors yeah. have written memoirs. And I right. think when, you know, when you have kind of the big wigs who are, are, are finally 
you know, writing and, and telling their stories, then you kind of have to, the agency has to, you know, be more egalitarian. Um, and I also, I just think that in general, that the agency has become more reasonable over the years. Um, and I mean, I think I was there at um, an unusual time. I mean, I was there not long after 9-11 and the agency was sort of recalibrating and um, kind of soul searching and, and a little bit more, I think, paranoid and insecure because we'd had this big intelligence failure, 9-11, and they were trying to shift operations from um, traditional, almost Cold War type operations to counterterrorists. And, you know, it was an agency that didn't really, that was in flux. And I think for that reason, they were a little bit more paranoid. Um, and I think that trickled down to publication review for several years as well. Yeah. I, when uh, you were writing and thinking about the story and the Arab Spring story and the, and the Bahrain, Bahrain story, how much of it did you incorporate into your characters to make, to, to make them around characters? Because you were already out, right? Yeah. So you were making people up in your head. How much of that did you If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Used to create the character arcs themselves. The story, the plot, fine, got it. But the uh, yeah. character arcs, how, how about that? Well, I mean, I so my main character, Shane Collins, is kind of, um, I would say, an amalgam of a lot of people I knew and worked with. Um, and I, and uh, the only character who's really based directly on someone is the young sort of um, unctuous station chief. <laughs> and uh, I think we've all, we've all known that type. Gotta love them. <laughs> Every station chief was a grit with a dream. <laughs> right. I mean, in law school, we called them gunners, which were the kids like at the front of the class, raising their hands, <laughs> gunning to answer yeah. the question. Um, so yeah, so he was the only one that, um, was based directly on, I'd say a real person, but a lot of the, um, expat characters were based on, on actual, on actual, uh, people. I was very much part of the expat community in Bahrain for two years. So it was really based on, on people I knew. And actually some of the dialogue was verbatim dialogue that I heard when I was over there. I mean, I just couldn't. I, I just couldn't come up with better dialogue on my own. Um, just this sort of hedonistic um, insular bubble of expats, which I think you see again and again in foreign countries, and you saw it in Bahrain. And it was, um, and some of the things they would say were just were just incredible. You know, one woman saying, "Oh, you can wear anything that that you want in this country," which of course you can't, but she meant that you can wear luxury goods, and it was just this sort of um, this very uh, privileged um, attitude. Well, it's a, it's an interesting thought, you know. It, it sounds like you um, are glad to be out of the agency, and you speak of the agency almost like a person, like a character, like a single person. Oh. Is that how you is that how you see it? Um, no, I mean I am glad that I'm out uh, because I think it is it's a heavy career. It's not great for family life. Um, but I'm really proud of my service. I do think I was there at kind of not the best time for the agency, and I do think it's gotten a lot better. I kind of saw the agency, and I don't want to say it's worse, but certainly not as best. Um, and I think, but my, my view, you know, over time is that I think it's a really noble organization that does great work. And I do think that I do think it's variegated. I don't, I don't view it as monolithic. Um, and I think that uh, there are good and bad people in the agency, just like in any organization. So, um, so no, I knew great people even when I was there. And, and what's really blown me away is that is since my book has come out, um, the, the agency community, both current and uh, former have just been so incredibly supportive. I mean, in a way that I never thought possible, but um, I've just been blown away by it. The agency has a creative writing, an internal creative writing group called Invisible Inc. (laughs) And um, they reached out to me and had me come and and speak at the agency. It was the first time I'd gone back in the building in, you know, 15 years. And I was so uh, flattered and honored. And I just, I feel like um, they've just, I'm so, I'm so grateful for their support. 
Yeah, I got a I got a note saying please don't ever show up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stay away. Stay away. They give him the wrong address. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's weird. I mean, it's weird to be back. Like the building had totally changed. Everything was more modern. I mean, when I was there, they had just put in when I left not long before I left, they put in the Dunkin' Donuts, which was like so exciting. <laughs> Dunkin', Dunkin Donuts, Donuts and a Starbucks. Those were like the two big things. Oh. Yeah, and let me tell you, so so they um so when the Dunkin' Donuts opened, I mean, man, that thing had a line for like two hours every morning for like a year. <laughs> And the rumor was that, like, the director wanted to get rid of it or, or a subsequent director wanted to get rid of it because it was just a big time suckage for all employees. See, when Joe was first there, they just put in flush toilets. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the dinosaurs were still roaming. Electricity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, Dunkin' Donuts, wow, that's luxury. I mean, it was a big deal, yeah. Working in intelligence can be an exceptionally highly stressful job. When you did your writing, did you find that in a way therapeutic? Oh, 100%. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, especially coming back from, from Baghdad, I mean, I think I probably had PTSD, as I think almost everyone who's in war does. I don't know anyone who doesn't have some degree of it. Um, and it was really rough for me for about a year. Um, and I mean, I would, I would get panic attacks and loud noises would startle me. And, um, and, and there was one operation in particular in Baghdad that, um, really kind of haunted me. Um, and I, I've, I've written about this, the agency has cleared this. Um, but basically I helped through my informant to apprehend an alleged top 10 terrorist target who was accused of participating in the 2003 bombing of UN headquarters in Baghdad. And, um, and I, and, it, and, and I, through my informant, I was able, we were able to help to track this guy down. We brought him in for questioning and the military detained him. He didn't confess. Um, but I thought for sure, you know, eventually the truth would come out and I felt like I had I'd done my, my job and I felt like this was a huge victory. I mean, it was, in 2004, 2005, um, we were not really doing so well in Baghdad. Um, we were trying, we were looking for Zarqawi, who was the head of al-Qaeda in Iraq, and we were not finding him. This, this guy was supposed to be tied to al-Qaeda in Iraq, and I, this was, I didn't feel like I was making a lot of progress, and this was a huge victory for me. And then um, years later, a colleague of mine at, at Langley mentioned that she had questioned him at a different uh, detention facility. This was like two years later and that he still hadn't confessed and people were starting to think maybe we'd gotten the wrong guy. And it was like a moment of um, reckoning for me. I mean, it was, it was a moment that kind of stopped me and, and still haunts me to this day. And, um, you know, it's like, did I save a life or did I really affect someone's life in a bad way? You know, I mean, I, I don't know. To this day, I don't know. And I think my book is, um, is about, in some ways, you know, it's about a, an aging spy caught in the crosswinds of the Arab Spring who makes these decisions that have sort of world-altering consequences but aren't necessarily what he anticipated. So I think in a, in a way it was sort of me um, processing my own experiences in this world of espionage where you make these decisions in a fog of war, a fog of, of spying and um and you don't always know what the consequences will be 
And by the way, if you haven't uh, gotten her book, you should. It's great. Thank you. And you sort of alluded to this to your time in Baghdad and Bahrain, perhaps, as an expat. I'll go back to my quick story I've said before. I, uh, Tom Clancy spoke in the bubble when I was first there, and he said, as long as I write, you guys are going to be the heroes in my book. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, so I, my question is, given your characters, and we were just talking about the PTSD and yeah. things were going good, did you frame your characters as good, bad, real? Yeah. You know, not quite cliche. How, how did you characterize them? That's such a good question. Um, I don't think any of my characters would be considered a hero. In fact, I think when I first signed with my agent, he said, oh, I love that you have all anti-heroes in your book. And I mean, so a lot of people, people have very strong reactions to my protagonist because he's not incredibly likable. (laughs) And um, for me, I felt like, A, that was more realistic and B, it was more interesting that way. And um, I, I found when I, you know, when I, look back at literature I love, the most interesting characters were always the mixed or unlikable ones. Um, Theodore Dreiser in American Tragedy um, has a horribly unlikable protagonist, or The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen has, a, has an unlikable protagonist. And I think that makes them more interesting, and in a way, even more sympathetic, because I think, I don't know, you look for kind of the good in them, and um, I, I mean, I think my protagonist, Shane Collins, um, he, uh, I, I don't think he, I, I think he tries to do the right thing in his own way. And, um, and so for me, he's not a hero, but in a way he, he kind of is. And um, I think it, I tried to sort of pay homage to the people who are caught in this messy world um, and they're not clear cut heroes, but they, they do their best and they try to do the right thing. So I know that um, the, the three of us here who have worked in this industry know that the reality to working in the industry is very, very slow, very gradual, and can be even boring at times, and, and very, very complex, unlike the kind of Hollywood glitz and glam, and I know you've tried to stray away from that. So what challenges were there when it comes to kind of putting this into, into book form to uh, turn this into a novel that is... is based more on the reality of working yeah. in intelligence, more so, you know, the, the bang, bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a great point. I mean, I think that a lot of people expect spy novels to be shoot 'em up car chases, and that was not the kind of novel I wanted to write. Um, so I think mine is, um, you know, more of a, it's kind of quieter, more realistic um, spy novel. I mean, I think I didn't feel like I had to embellish much to make it exciting, because sometimes I feel like, even the the um, the reality is is more interesting to me than um, than the theatrics. I mean, I think that uh, uh, you know it's it's sort of easy to use you know technology or um, or lots of uh, fireworks, I guess, to propel a plot. Um, and in some ways, I think that more interesting plots are are more um, psychological or cerebral. So they're not um, high drama plots, I guess. And so that, so I, I, I did feel like I was, a, I felt like I, I set out to write um, an interesting spy novel based on sort of the, the psychological aspect of it, because I think at its essence, tradecraft is, is really psychological anyway. Um, there were some, there were themes here and there where I felt like I had to throw in a few 
a few theatrical gimmicks. Like there's a scene where Source uses invisible ink with lemon juice. And I get a lot of people who ask me, um, oh, yeah, you guys use, you know, you use invisible ink at the CIA, right? And I'm like, no, I got that idea from my kid's science project. <laughs> that was, yeah. that was, wild, wild things. West had that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was a free gift at uh, Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is something, actually, all you can answer, but I I wonder, Lana, if the lifestyle, when you talked about at the very beginning about the manipulating and all that and and the things that you went through and how it affected you and stuff, does that lifestyle ever go away? Like, can you ever break away from of thinking and, and, and I mean this in the fact of things are going on in the world and there's a lot of stuff now uh, in public with problems and stuff. But whenever stuff happens, do you, does it take you back to that, that time when you were in there and, and do you react the same way? Yeah. I mean, I do think that being in a, in a profession where you're taught to distrust everyone and people kind of distrust you, I do think that makes you more cynical um, and maybe a little, uh, savvier as well. Um, so I don't, I do, I do think I look at the world with a kind of more jaundiced, cynical eye. And I think, you know, if, if you read my book, you can see that too, because it's, it's like I said, it's a pretty dark book. Um, and I think it, it does, yeah, it, it does make me savvier. I mean, just recently to give you an example, um, I had this horrible hoax played on me where uh, I got a, a, a call from um, with an AI generated voice of my son, my son's voice, but it was AI generated and he was in distress. I don't know if, if you've heard about this hoax. I had not heard about it at the time, but anyhow, it was really horrifying and it was my son's voice. And at the time I had like sense in, you know, in the middle of it to think, to think of like kind of an op test to see if this was really my son, because it kind of was occurring to me that this was a hoax. So I said, you know, what's your birthday? And at that point, the person calling who undoubtedly wanted money or something hung up. But I do think like you, I mean, that's how you learn to think as a case officer, you know, is, is you learn to, um, to kind of game people and to come up with these tests and to assume that you're being manipulated. So I think it is part of my psyche for better and for worse, but I'm, I'm curious what other people think. How much do you, have you taken with you now, not men- mentally, but sort of naturally automatic in your everyday life? And I'll give you my example. Mm-hmm. I've been out for a long time, and I do situational awareness, SDR, looking in my mirror, walking down the street, looking for people all the time. Do you? Constantly. I can't get away from it. In fact, I was on a, a Motorola trip long ago, and I... I was, we were being followed by a thief. And I was saying, I told my guy I was with, we're, we're being followed. He was like, oh my God. So just stay with me. And I ran an SDR and got this guy basically thrown out of a mall. Oh my God. But is, yeah, is there any, so yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's another, it's more interesting story than that. I'm not the guest, but is there anything, and maybe Gavin too, is there anything that you just can't get away from? And, 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 do you, and did you implant that on your characters perhaps since it's a, since you built these characters? I, I, personally, I, I teach my daughter this, so when I can't get away from it, it's not just the fact that I can't get away from it, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching my daughter, we do an SDR on the way to school, um, so, you know, and, and the school's half a mile away, and it takes us, like, kind of 20 minutes, so, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm constantly teaching, we, we, we play the silly plate game, where she sits in the car, and she'll, she'll be, like, making up a, a, a 
word from the last three letters on the license plate of the vehicle behind. Um, she needs to observe it, observe it without kind of making it obvious. Um, and if the vehicle changes, you know, then uh, then we, 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 we've got this cra- we've got crazy games we play for situational awareness and all sorts of things. So not only can I not get away from it personally. I'm, I'm instilling it into my daughter, so we go out for a meal, and she instinctively knows where I want to sit in the restaurant. You know, she's looking yeah. at the exits and the cameras and the ways out and, <laughs> and that kind of thing. So, so is my <laughs> wife. How about you, Alana? Are you there yet, or you're still? A- yeah, you know, I mean, I think you know, it's weird. I think I actually had the opposite experience in that. I think I kind of made a conscious break from that lifestyle after I left. I mean, I do remember you know, for a while after leaving the agency, it was like Joe said, I mean, it's such a part of you and you're kind of staring out of windows and you're looking in your mirror and you're looking behind your shoulder. And I mean, that those habits die hard for sure. But I also think um, that it's such a burden. I mean, it really is like, that's one thing I don't miss about the agency. When you're there, you're always looking behind your shoulder. And um, I, I, it's like a weight. And, and I think at a certain point in my life, I was like, I left, I'm out, you know, I, I, I served my country and I'm incredibly proud of that and uh, I wouldn't trade it. But, you know, I, at a point in my life, I just felt like I want to let go of the weight. So I don't, I don't, I don't look in my mirrors. I don't, I mean, the skills are all there, um, but, but I try not to, I try not to be that, um, you know, that cautious and, and have that mindset. Now you will. No, I know. <laughs> Joe got me kicked out of the mall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I look just like you. <laughs> yeah, it was me. Oh, I still do it, and I'm not even in the agency. So, <laughs> did you, Ilana? Did you plan um, a meaning in this? Did you? Did you? Besides the story itself, the the entertainment value and stuff, was there something you wanted to get across to people when they read the book? Yeah, I mean, I think I wanted to get across the nature of espionage, and I wanted to paint a really realistic, unvarnished picture, not not the, you know, not the glamorous, sexy picture that is out there so often, which, and I love those kind of books, they're escapist and they're wonderful, but I just wanted to write as realistic a, a spy novel as I could, um, and, and I wanted to convey the toll it takes on you. I also, I think, wanted to make a point about the the Middle East, you know, apropos of what's going on in the world, um, that I I spent, you know, a year in Baghdad, two years in in Bahrain. And, you know, the Middle East is such an interesting, complex, intricate place. And people, I think, don't understand it. I think they rush to judgment. I think there's so many layers to the Middle East and there's so many layers to these conflicts. And I think um, American intervention in, in historically um, in various conflicts, not just in the Middle East, including in like Vietnam, for example, but has been um, kind of a minefield. You know, it, it hasn't it's had unintended consequences um, or in Iraq, for example. And and I and I think I wanted to convey that feeling of sort of enter at your own risk. I mean, my book, I, I hope, conveys the um complexity of the Arab Spring and how Western intervention um, can have really profound consequences and perhaps not the consequences we intend. Oh, so it's not like Joe told me. Joe told me that it was just like James Bond. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Pay no attention to real reality. <laughs> Great character, though. He has, he has moment of time. Fortunately, George Smiley came along and sort of balanced it out. Yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, so you actually just, you just act... It's true. That's why you did it. So, and you actually yes. just said a word 
about sort of complexity and the, and so I used I was I wrote down the word nuance while you were talking. Arab Spring. There, there was so much like you say underneath it, yeah. the people and the politics and the and the forces before behind it. Yeah. So so my overall question is: Did you start with the plot as your main point, or did you start with the characters that main point, and they were interacting with that nuance and that plot? I think I had in my mind that I wanted my main character to be caught between the two sides of the Arab Spring and to think he's going in one direction, but then to slowly go in another direction. So I kind of knew where the beginning and the end would be. I didn't necessarily know exactly how to get there, what the middle would be. So, so I, think, um, I think I had the plot and I adjusted the characters, but I did, but at the same time, I did have very clear ideas of what the character, what I wanted the characters to look like. And a lot of it was influenced by um, The Quiet American by Graham Greene. I don't know if, if anyone's read that. Classic. Yeah. I mean, Classic. my favorite book of all time, spy novel or otherwise. Yep. I just think it's like a masterpiece uh, on a plane. It's always in the top five. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so terrific. And I took so much of my, my book in a way was sort of a, a, a modern reimagining of The Quiet American because, you know, Vietnam, it was, it was um, the book is about you know this aging British journalist who who doggedly remains neutral who says he's not going to step off the sidelines until of course his young rival uh, Alden Pyle you, you know takes takes his lover and um, but there's the whole geopolitical context of getting involved in in Vietnam and I mean many say that book is sort of the the quintessential cautionary tale against involvement and entanglement. And, um, and I, and I thought, gosh, you know, the Arab spring in so many ways is like a modern analog of, of Vietnam in that way. And so I kind of modeled my characters after, I mean, I have, after the fight American, I have the, the aging um, spy. He's not a journalist, but he is basically vying with this young rival who's kind of the face of American optimism and naivete, just like in The Quiet American. And in fact, my, my character, the station chief, um, his name is Whitney Alden Mitchell, and his middle name, Alden, I took from the, the name of the character in The Quiet American, the CIA author named Alden. So sort of a, a nod to Sam Green. Ah, I didn't catch it. I'm an idiot. Yeah, that's okay. Nobody does. That's fine. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm an idiot. yeah I, I was <laughs> just leaving that with sounding good. <laughs> That was so good. You beat Gavin to the punch. Thank you. (laughs) Well, so um, now that you've completed the book and you look back at it and it's out and everything, um, do you think that it's that it's affected you in some way? Have you have you gained some sort of knowledge or changed in somewhat after going through the experience of writing this book? Yeah, I think that um, I think that it definitely. It's kind of like a form of therapy. I think it's helped to understand my experiences. I mean, I don't think I had in my mind when I started off the book, oh, I'm really haunted by that operation in Baghdad where I might have helped to detain an innocent man. I don't think I was thinking that at the beginning of the book, but I think by the end I was. So I think, you know, it helped me sort of come to terms with my own issues and and my own ghosts. I think that am I... Am I all the better for it? Probably not, because I think, <laughs> I don't know. I think, um, you know, when you have things like, I, I think it's a work in progress. I think that it helps you to, 
to deal with these things. I think that, but it's a, it's something you have to continue to do. So, I mean, it's something that still haunts me is, is I guess my point, but I'm more self-aware. Just smoke your meat on the barbecue and you'll, you'll yeah. become better. <laughs> that's, he's, that's towards, that's aimed at me. So you leave that alone. All right. Don't, 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 don't humor him. Don't give him a chance. Just walk away. When you were at the DOD, was it uh, something that you had intentions straight away of going, transition to the CIA, or was that something that, was it an opportunity? Was it a talent spot? What, tell us about the transition there. Yeah, so I actually was enrolled in law school right after college, and then I had like a panic attack because I was like, I don't know if I want to practice law. So I deferred my entry for two years and went overseas to work for DOD as an intelligence analyst. And I loved that job. To this day, that's probably one of my favorite jobs. I felt like I, you know, I was, I was serving the military. I was serving alongside these amazing heroic men and women. And I just loved it. And I got to use my brain to analyze issues. At the time, it was the, the Balkans were the big issue. I would go back and forth. I was stationed near Cambridge, England, um, and I would go back and forth to the Balkans, and it was so interesting. And then I was, I intended, actually, I deferred my, yeah, no, I deferred for two years, and, and I intended just to go back to law school after that, um, to start law school after that. And I remember somebody, I worked with a lot of different intel types with, when I was working for the Department of Defense and um, including the CIA. And I remember one guy, he was a, a military guy, and he said, um, you know, you might want to consider applying to the CIA. You know, they, they could use more women. <laughs> and it kind of was like, oh, huh, okay. You know, because I loved my job so much. And I thought, wow, you know, to be a case officer, it's a similar job, but I'm really in the trenches as a case officer and I'm overseas and, um, and it's exciting. And I thought, okay, so maybe I'll do that. So I applied to the CIA, um, but back then it uh, it was a glacial process. It took it took over two years. So then I went to law school while I was waiting for my application to process, and uh, and then I started the agency and never practiced law until after I left. Which is what you're doing now, right? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, in theory, I, I practiced law for a few years after I, I left the agency, and then um, and it was national security law. But um, then I got married and, and had my son, and then we moved to Bahrain when my son was a toddler, and um, and it was it was hard to practice law from Bahrain. So um, so that's so then I started writing my book when I got back, and and thought, you know, I probably. I think writing is a better fit than, than practicing law. So I kind of took a step back. Yeah, I don't blame you, you know. <laughs> so, so, so what are you going to go on to next? Are you going to do this then more regular? Are you going to have more books? I hope so. Um, I'm, I'm start, I started on my second book, and, you know, funny enough, it's about that operation I described. Uh, it's based on that operation I described in Baghdad um, where we helped to apprehend perhaps the wrong guy and, and sort of the avalanche of consequences that follows. Um, but I just, I, I do feel like I would love to write a book about the experience of a, of a female uh, case officer, a counterterrorist case officer in wartime Baghdad, because I feel like that's sort of a, an underrepresented um, experience. You know, it's not, there, there's not a lot out there about that. So, but I welcome any suggestions if anyone has any. <laughs> Write yeah. another great book. That's excellently pressure. Write another great book. Oh well, thanks. Well, <laughs> oh my yeah. well that's well that's my question. Well, that was actually my question: is what impact your book has had a lot of success, best best book of the year lists and things. What impact 
has that, or what do you think will have on as you write your second book? Do you feel the pressure of the readers over your shoulder, thinking about, oh, they would, they, I gotta, I gotta satisfy them, or are they just not there at all? Yeah, it's such a good question. A little bit, I do, and I didn't, I didn't anticipate that because I've never been that kind of writer. I mean, I just write the best thing I can. But what's weird is that the number one question I get is why I wrote a male protagonist. I mean, that really, I think, that really throws people. And, um, and the reason I did, by the way, is, A, I, I really needed kind of a typical case officer, someone who'd been in the business for, you know, 20-some years. And that's really just more typically male. That's the reality. And number two was that a female operating in the Middle East would face a whole host of constraints and limitations that a man wouldn't. And that would have been my story then. That would have, it would have been a totally different story and not really the one I wanted to tell. So that's why I had a male protagonist. But a lot of people are thrown by the fact that, um, that I wrote, that I'm a female writing a male protagonist. And, and it has given me pause. I mean, I think my next book, I was going to have a female protagonist regardless. But it, it almost seems a necessity now because so many people have asked, you know, oh, you really should write a, a female protagonist. And, and also, I think, um, it, you know, when you read my book, you see that it, I, I'm, a very, I'm kind of a descriptive writer. I mean, I write, um, I write a lot of details. And, and for me, that, that's just my writing style. And also, I, I really wanted to make time and place a character in the book. Like, I wanted Bahrain to be a character in the book, because to me, it was as interesting and evolving and changing as a human. And the best way for me to do that was to write really descriptively about Bahrain. And some people love it. Most people, I would say, love it. But then some people don't. Some people think, oh, it's too many words. Or I just want, you know, like, he did this, he did that, you know, just kind of bare bones. And I do find myself kind of thinking more about my writing style, like, oh, maybe I should adjust it based on what people have said. So... I don't know. I haven't figured it all out. I mean, I, do, do you all have thoughts on that? I mean, how has it been for you guys? Well, if you ask me, I don't do your style, but I would say, I would say, uh, keep going like you're going. I, I, you know, I, I think that the, uh, location is very important. And so you write it as a character. So Bahrain has to be, um, you have to describe it. And if someone doesn't get that, I think it has too much effect on your story right too much not to do it mm-hmm. that's my opinion mm-hmm. but, you know i who am i i'm just a radio guy so well i i'll be writing male female i you know, write the write the female character you know put yourself in their shoes because you're talking to you're, you're talking to a bunch of people who may want to be that right you're you may be influencing them saying ah this is an interesting i want to, i want like you did i want to be a case officer i'm in the trenches like, mm-hmm. there's somebody like them who's there you've been there so that might be, mm-hmm. if you want to talk about the grand scheme, that might be something. But I think you'll also enjoy that character because you'll just see yourself and your friends and, you'll and the limitations and advantages. Because when I was there, the women were just like, forget it. There weren't that many. Yeah. And and I would say, you know, to write it, because you said, you know, you had the beginning, and just sit down and as you write your, you know, first, best, worst sentence and, and, and let it rip, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for all my thoughts on, on, oh, maybe I should, you know, change this or change that. At the end of the day, I think, you know, you are who you are as a writer, you know, and, and I think when it comes out, it's kind of like your personality. I mean, you can only change your personality so much. It's still who you are. So, um, you know, I think it's, 
it's taken me a lifetime to find my voice, but here it is. And, and use that voice. Yeah. yeah I mean, it. I think, I think it's there for better or worse. So yeah. You tell them Shane used to be a woman. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very interesting idea. It was a good show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, that, that solves that problem and say, well, Shane is a, a female character. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah. That would be okay. Yeah. And then they'll go, oh, okay. And say, yeah. well, you'll find out more about that in book two, you see, and then you'll be selling lots of book twos. Right. right. Okay. I Good you. idea. You just need yeah. me as your agent, right? Yeah, I'm, I, I'll work it out for you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Great idea. I'm, I'm groaning. <laughs> how was it getting in the head of your main character, Shane Collins, then? Like, how, how, how did you uh, arrive at that place? Yeah, I get that question a lot. And, you know, I did, it was not that hard, to be honest. I mean, because I, he's not a lot like me. But um, I don't know. I just felt like I would sit down at, at this local Starbucks every day. And I would just think to myself, okay, I'm, I am Shane Collins. Like, what am I going to say? Sometimes I'm a jerk. You know, sometimes I, I want to say something nasty to someone. And, um, and occasionally I would find my... <laughs> I mean, he's not, just getting kicked out of Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I mean, I, occasionally I'd find myself writing a sentence that I felt was too bland. Like it sounded like me or it sounded like a, like a neutral narrator. Right. And then I, you know, I would stop. I mean, I really went over every sentence in my book with sort of a, a fine tooth comb. And I was like, would Shane Collins say that, you know, or would he say something that like, or would he be more of a dick, you know, like, and, and usually the answer was the latter. And so I would, you know, I would, I would really go through and think what, you know, I'm Shane Collins. What am I, what's coming out of my mouth? And I, and I also had the, the whole backstory in my mind. I mean, it, in, you know, you learn a little about his childhood. He was abused as a child and his parents were alcoholics and he is an alcoholic. And, um, and, and to me, that made him more sympathetic. Um, and I, I kind of kept that in my mind too. Like this is a guy who's damaged, who carries a lot of baggage and that affects his decisions. And, um, you know, but, but there's good in him too. Brilliant. So with that in mind, what would you say to anybody who wants to come and look at a career in intelligence now? And, uh, and, and what would your advice to, those, advice to them be? Um, I, would, I would say go for it. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's such a um, it's it's such a, a noble profession. I mean, I think you, you make a lot of sacrifices doing it, but I think it's it's certainly a a, a necessary service. Um, and I think the agency has really changed for the better over the years. Um, you know, when I was there, there this was before the Me Too movement, and women weren't always treated well. And I've seen almost like a sea change, just from the outside, at least. I've seen a, a big change in the agency. Um, there's, been, there's been a lot of accountability. The agency had its first female director. Um, they're having hearings now, I think, on, on Capitol Hill about sexual harassment. So I think it's a, it's a friendlier environment for women than now than it used to be. And I think it's, it's just a more um, accountable uh, organization than it used to be. So. Um, I'm, you know, I, at the end of the day, it was, you know, it had its good and bad moments, but at the end of the day, it was really, it was a, it was a good experience for me and I would, I would recommend it. And you've, you've sort of answered this question, but I think I, I, I'm asked a different way in, in simple terms. Why write? Why does Alana write? Oh, um, 
Well, it's what I've always done. Um, I, you know, even when I was a kid, I think that was my way of dealing with anything. I, I would keep voluminous journals. Um, I, and I remember my mom would sneak into my room and read them. And I was like, I was so angry because I kept my life in these journals. And, um, and when I was in my, boo mom, boo mom. I know, right. I'm, I'll tell her not to, not to listen to this, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, um, when I was in my twenties, I, I backpacked around Europe and I remember I kept voluminous travel journals. I would, um, I would record everything that, that I saw was my way of understanding these countries and their culture and their history. Um, I still have all those travel journals and every now and then, I mean, I, I wrote so much every now and then, like I would find myself right when I wrote the Peacock and the Sparrow, I would find an old sentence I'd written for my travels or wherever, like creeping out into my, into my manuscript that I'd written, you know, 20 years ago or something. And um, so I think it was just my, my way. I used to write like angst written poems when I was a teenager. (laughs) I mean, there's, so bad, like just so bad. I can't even read them now. But um, but it was always my kind of go-to mechanism for making sense of my experiences. I had a I had a teacher in my seventh grade English teacher who was who was wonderful and um, supportive, and she's actually in my acknowledgement. She always encouraged me to be a writer. But I would write such like dark and angst-ridden poems that one time she she asked me to stay after school and she was like are you okay like what's wrong with you and it really I I was totally fine I mean I just I was like a normal you know teenage girl just dealing with teenage things um but yeah it always came out in my writing and you don't like those poems hey so we've got some of them here we're going to read them (laughs) oh great wonderful (laughs) no just kidding well, now, are you are you available on social media for people? Do you have a website? How do you like readers to find you? Oh, yeah. Um, all of the above. I have a website, isberry.net, and I am isberry author on both Twitter and Instagram and threads, if anyone's on threads. Not many people are, but, yeah. No, not very many yet, but yeah, yeah. they're there. They're there. So, yeah. Well, fantastic. Oh, okay, so we'll have all of that up on our website and uh, oh, great. along with your book. And the book is The Peacock and the, and the Sparrow. It's a novel. I.S. Barry is the uh, author and our guest. So thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It, w- it was a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, all shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.